what I want to know is, what is really good in your life today? I'm Kia, and this is another episode of the Female Veterans Podcast. Lynn's journey since her time in the National Guard has been full of twists and turns, highs and lows. She's battled the Department of Veterans Affairs and has helped numerous veterans as a volunteer at the DAV. Her passion is helping women veterans just like mine. And this woman has saved homes and she saved lives of female veterans. She has gone from being homeless to starting a not-for-profit organization called Hope for Vets. And I can tell you, she is an incredibly amazing person. Hey, Lynn. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you joined me today, and I can't wait to find out all the details of your experience. So tell me, what made you join the military? Well, growing up wasn't was always there was always a struggle in the in the life you know family life. Um, wanted to do more. Wanted to be wanted to go beyond myself, beyond um, helping up, not just helping my family, but helping others. Um, so what it got me is that I didn't know I really didn't know where I wanted to go and what what I wanted to do. So the next best thing was to join the well, I first joined the National Guard. And um, six years, spent six years there and still felt something was missing as a single parent even. Mm -hmm. So being a single parent, um, I did have to give rights up to the father, but I ended up joining the active duty for four years um, in 2001 and 2004. And so that's where the journey started, um, being able to, you know, help others and being able to see what's really out there in reality. Okay, so which branch did you join? Um, Army, uh, Army National Guard, and then the Army Active in Fort Benning, Georgia. It was the main main um, station that was where I was stationed. What was being in the National Guard like? National Guard is one weekend a month. Um, you live your own life, so it's it's um, it's just kind of uh, connecting with military, doing your job um, on one two weekends of the year. Uh, you did did a deploy not a deployment, but you you worked with um, you did a mission for two weeks in the field wherever they sent you. Um, so I did that for six years. I lived my own life, but I felt something was still missing. So that's when I joined the active duty. It sounds kind of like the reserves. It's very similar, very mm -hmm. similar. Mm -hmm. So okay, so then you did the National Guard, so you were familiar with sort of the military way of being, and then you went into the Army. So did you? You had to do boot camp. What was boot camp like for you? Actually, the way it went is I did boot camp before I joined National Guard. Oh, so okay. So I did basic and AIT before National Guard. I started in '93 and '94. Mm -hmm. I did basic and AIT, um, South Carolina and. Um, Lost in the Woods, Missouri. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we did that, and um, it was tough. It was tough. I, I mean, many, many people do struggle, but got through it. Um, you know, sometimes when you struggle, that's the best, best way of getting through things. 
Right. I agree with that. I mean, boot camp was definitely pretty hard for me, but it wasn't as hard in the Navy as I expected it to be because you see much more like Army, I think, and Marines information, at least I did growing up. And I was completely clueless about the Air Force and the Navy. So when I went into the Navy, uh, I expected boot camp to be more like it is in the Army, but it, it kind of wasn't. There was still a lot of physical exercise, but I was shocked by how many classes I had to take all day. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I loved learning. It just, that whole process of learning in boot camp really rewired my brain to learn at a rapid pace. And that's the biggest takeaway, I think, from schooling in the military was like learning at such an accelerated rate that when I came out and went to college, I struggled because I couldn't learn at such a slow rate. So I had to accelerate courses in schools, like online, changed my life. <laughs> so that's that I what could I go to school. And that's what I see in a lot of, it's not just the, you know, when you get out, it's hurry up and wait. The, the whole theme mm-hmm. of hurry up and wait, active duty, National Guard, whatever you do. But also the hurry up and wait is I see a lot of the transitional, you know, just even with the the struggle with what you said, the Mm -hmm. struggle with the transitioning, um, hurry up and wait. You're not used to kind of hurrying up and wait for civilians to kind of catch up with your mentality of, you know, come on, let's get this done. And, and Mm -hmm. instead of let's sit on it, you know, so Mm -hmm. it's, it's a very struggle to adapt, but also a lot of what I've seen, you know, even as an employment specialist working with veterans is that I see a lot of, starting back over I, you know I've been in the military I've served 15 20 years mm-hmm. but then I'm coming out and I start all back over and it's a very big struggle because there's the self-confidence and there's the lack of you know lack of confidence being able to see the the transition and the difficulty of hey I'm not good enough anymore why mm-hmm. I serve this I should be I should be proud of my service Yeah, it's a a different world. It's a different world out here. And I think a lot of the veterans that I've talked to and helped along the way were struggling. They were in the thick of their struggle of uh, readjusting to civilian life. And like I always say, for me, especially reentering the corporate world, there was not the same camaraderie. There was not the same connection. There was, the language was different. People behaved just differently. And so for me, it was really like eye-opening. I'm like, this is a completely different world. I'm not sure that I want to be a part of, (laughs) you know? Well, and the other, the other thing that I have noticed in the transitioning of thing is that when you, somebody gets out and I'll tell a little bit more on the story, but when somebody gets out, um, you know, and they're doing better nowadays, you know, and they're, mm-hmm. they're trying to reach the ones that are active. But when you right. got up and most people can, uh, you know, sub, uh, to talk about it is that we didn't have, you know, nobody came to us and said, here's the resources out in civilian world. Mm-hmm. Here's a, here's a thing. If you become homeless, here's, you know, resources for this and that. And people just hid. And a lot of the, another scenario is that I see a lot of people get out and, you know, it's, it's 50, 50, but a lot of people get out and go, I don't want anything to do with the military for a while. Either mm-hmm. they have a trauma or they they're just done for now. Um, even though some still serve. And that's where I see a lot of the passion and a lot of organizations come out is, is that person who's developed that organization or in the general idea have a passion because they've gone through the journey um, of struggle or a journey of someone else struggling and right. they want to help. 
Right. I agree with that. I feel like I'm one of those people. <laughs> so, um, okay. So tell me what your military experience was like. Well, the National Guard was another story. Um, we let you lived lived day day in and day out as a regular, you know, regular life. You know, you had relationships, you 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 had a job, so on and so on. And I mean, that was many many years ago. I would say ninety three to two thousand. Um, but when I went active duty, it was a new perspective. It was it was something that I was missing in life. You know, I was going through relationships. In the civilian world, I wasn't connecting. Um, I was going dead end jobs. I wanted to do something different, and even though as a single mom, I still missing something. So I gave, you know, I gave up my rights for a little bit, and I went active duty. And during that time, I would have never, uh, when I got in in two thousand, in two thousand, early two thousand one, before you know the towers hit. Um, there, they gave that opportunity also to, you know, get, we got a free computers and free um, laptops to go to school. I would have never gone to school. I would have never gone to school and never thought about going to college. Um, so that opportunity kept me going. Um, and I think in this, in one sense, I think the college saved me um, in the stories that I'm going to tell further, but it, it you know, I, I struggled in the beginning. I probably went through three or four different colleges before I ended up, mm -hmm. you know, finally getting my master's degree. But it was a struggle, but it was one of those things that I believe that one piece that saved me. Um, I served four years active duty. And during those three years, two and a half years, actually, uh, I, I, was, I was support for E5 officer schools. Um, I served in Fort Benning. And during that time with the officer schools and stuff, I, I was in the field. I was behind a truck, you know, transportation. I slept in my truck. I, I camped outside um, two and a half years of, you know, I was a single, I wasn't a mom at that time because I didn't have my child with me. So they sent me out continuously as a knee for um, continuously. I went in into the field and I came back to shower and I went back into the field. I didn't spend a lot of time in the unit itself, I spent a lot of time, you know, in the field, you know, sleeping or being on call, you know, you have to be on call 24 seven, you get a five minute nap, oh, I'm, we're, we're ready to go, we're ready to go. And uh, you're the only one there, you know, driving these five tons and semis, you know, you, you get jokes around it because you know, 120 pound female driving the semis and, and, you know, shutting these tailgates and hurting yourself. But Shutting yeah, these tailgates yeah. with these officers um, on board, there was a little respect, and then there was a little disrespect throughout the process. Oh. But I, I loved it. I loved the two and a half years, but then things changed. Um, my medical took over. Um, I ended up in the medical board, and I ended up getting custody um, because of an abuse back home and a fight with attorneys that um, I was able to have my son. So I was at the same time I was fighting the medical board because I was I was sick I was always at sick call, no I I didn't understand it, um, and then upon everything else um, I was fighting custody of my son to get back and I got custody because uh, he was abused. Okay, I'm gonna stop you there because I have questions. That's okay. So you got sick. Yes. Okay. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? 
I ended up getting, you know, um, in the military, you know, you work hard and you're always on call. Um, my back started hurting. I started having IBS issues, um, finding out with the IBS issues that I was allergic to MSG. Well, all military food is, is right. have some preservatives or in the field, the, um, what are they call them? The MREs. Those aren't quite as healthy to, to, to live off those for two and a half years. Right. But, um, and then when they brought hot meals out, they're going to be preservatives. They're, they're in containers. So I kept getting sick, not just because of IBS. I would get migraines. I had cer cervical issues with the migraines, neck issues. I work a Cavalier. Cavalier? Cavalier. <laughs> um, I worked two, year, two and a half years in the field. I had to. So my neck started really deteriorating. Um, and so I was in sick call more than I was out in the field after that fact. Um, that was three years into the process. Three years, eventually three years, and I re-enlisted. Um, in 2000, early 2003, I, re I, I served my three years and I re-enlisted um, another three years. But then because of the medical struggles, the custody of my child, and a struggle, troubles with my unit um it took it took a little downfall okay my question is this you're talking about custody of your child first you said you had to give it up why did you have to give it up well when they when i re-enlist when i re-enlisted um the the um i'm the one that went to the um the recruiter and said i want to go active duty mm -hmm. and they told me well you have to give custody up because you know, because, um, you know, it's your first enlistment, you could go war. Mm -hmm. Well, I did that. I voluntarily did that. So because I was missing something too. And I couldn't give I couldn't give what I needed to give to my son at that time. And mm -hmm. he was three or four years old. Right. Um, so when I got in, I found out because I was already National Guard, and it's very confusing to the military, because I they ended up sending me a National Guard check after I was out of active duty. But what they were confused um, that I served. It was a second tour. They considered a second tour. So I had rights to actually have my son. So I'm fighting the attorneys. I'm fighting the military to get him back. And I eventually got, it, got him back um, because of an abuse. So I just wanted to say, because, you know, women who are veterans know this, but anyone else who might be listening who doesn't serve in the military or hasn't, um, may not know that you were required to give up your son, like that the government required you to give up custody of your child in order to serve. So I just wanted to point that yes. out. Yes, as a single parent, you, mm -hmm. you must right. give uh, custody up either to grandparents or parents or whoever. Yeah, you must give it up um, because of the thing. And then they did, uh, we did have an attorney when we fought. Um, I wasn't, they weren't going to give me custody at first because of, the situation where you could go to where what ha what could happen right and then so we went into a family care plan when I did get them but that was there was some struggles with that too okay so all right so then now you're fighting a med board because now they're trying to med board you out because you've been sick yes I wasn't really fighting a med board the med board uh, um, said hey we can't send you to the field. You're not on um, duty. Um, I was on a profile. I eventually was ended up on a profile for only five pounds. Literally it was, it was, wow. it was, I couldn't do anything. It was, that's how sick I got. And it wasn't just the med board. I'm fighting the med board itself. I'm really fighting the unit. Um, mm -hmm. The unit, I, 
there was a new commander and that commander in general, uh, we called him Candyman. He loved giving Article 15s and I was on his radar. Um, radar for, and you know, me, most people, you know, when I hear people say, well, you know, you did wrong, you deserved it, or, you know, with the status of it, it took me 15 years to talk about this. 15 mm-hmm. years because people would say to just in general that, oh, well, you deserved it because, you know, you were, you were disobeying an office or whatever the case would be. It wasn't that. It was, I was sexually assaulted by a platoon, my platoon sergeant, who I trusted. And during that time frame, um, during that time frame, I did not feel comfortable staying on post. So I moved off. I moved off and lived with a, with a female who I did not know a lot about, and I should have beforehand. And she ended up help, starting trouble with that process. Um, but in the long run, um, I ended up getting for disobeying an officer because I moved away from the situation, the threats of this female. Um, uh, they held my BAH for five months. So they put me in a, uh, a failure to pay debit. I got an article 15 for something they gave me. Um, they held my BAH for five months because they said I didn't deserve it. After I reported it eight months later, because I was on administrative board, eight months later, I reported the sexual assault because at that time, my platoon sergeant was telling me, hey, we're going to get you, we're going to help you get E5. Um, I wasn't comfortable, but I was, I served three and a half years, three and a half years of my time um, as an E4 because I got in as an E4 um, and I wasn't lazy. It was, it has nothing to do it. Could you hear that a lot? People said, well, you're just lazy. It wasn't that I was the only white female in an all African-American male unit. It was an infantry unit. So I was, it was kind of fighting, it was kind of fighting, fighting the male population. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I did a lot of the work, um, even though, and it was, I was uncomfortable. I was uncomfortable for the process. Do you feel like there were any racial issues that you had oh. to face in that unit? There was a lot of harassment, a lot of sexual mm-hmm. harassment, a so lot of more harassment. It, it is, it is, I mean, it wasn't, it was also disrespect too. It was, mm-hmm. uh, you're a female there and you had to prove yourself. You had to prove yourself twice as much, three times mm-hmm. as much. Oh, yeah. she can't lift a tire. Mm-hmm. Well, no, it's not that I can't lift a tire. I need assistance. You know, this is, this, this is a five ton tire. This is not right. a little dinky tire that you put on a car. This is as big as a car. Um, you know, so they expected, you know, the expectation. Um, and there's just, there's just so much thing I spent again, I spent two and a half years in the field, serving my time, serving my country, 2001 hit. And I was in the field. I was in the Ranger battalion. I served a lot of time in the Ranger battalion. So, but I, I loved, I loved the time that I did serve prior to my last year being in the military and the struggles that I faced at the end. Mm-hmm. So you dealt with like a lot of harassment and, and is that what le- eventually led to the assault? Um, the, the assault itself happened prior. Um, the oh, assault I happened in 2003. Mm-hmm. I was afraid to report it. I see. Um, and then I was to the point that I had, because of the failure to pay debit, um, disobeying an officer, they knew I was on a medical board. Mm-hmm. And during that time, the only way you can stop a medical board 
is to receive three to four Article 15s. That's what they did. They, they handed me three to four Article 15s, and it was stuff that it was disobeying an officer, and it was things that they asked me to talk, and then they would take it back, saying, I didn't tell you to talk. You know? And so it was just threats. It was threats. After I did report it while I was on administrative board, in 2000, I spent eight months on administrative board meaning that I spent a lot of time with the commander and the lieutenant in their office, sitting on the couch, not saying a word for eight hours. Um, the only thing I could do, they, the only thing they would give me the opportunity to do is see a counselor. And during that process, I found that the first counselor they made, they, they told I had to go see a counselor because I was in crisis mode. Mm-hmm. And during that time, the first counselor that I actually went to see, and I wasn't ready to talk. I mean, I, I was going through threats and, and, you know, through the unit. And, you know, when you say a lot of people say um, they've got your back, you know, I can't, I can't say that because the unit did not have my back. Okay. Um, I have a question. Mm-hmm. So all of this is happening. You've, you've been assaulted. Now you've got all of these article 15s. Yes. And you're probably feeling incredibly persecuted. Yes. Yes. You were on your way to a medical board. So you were going to be getting out on a medical discharge. Yes. And now they ended that and put you on an admin. The administrative, what, what it started it, it was that they, when I first moved, moved into the, the female thing and we, I separated from that threatening situation. Um, they told me I had to change my family care plan and I had it with me and they threatened me for three months that, Hey, you don't have it. You don't have it. So then they couldn't um, take charge of that. They couldn't utilize it for a chapter seven. So instead they went ahead and they tried to get me from malingering for all my illnesses. Mm-hmm. So during that process on the medical board um, for that medical board itself, it, during that process, they, and during the process of getting sexually assaulted while I went off, I ended up being off post. Mm-hmm. Um, they were, they, it was, it was, it was a nightmare. It was like being it in prison. Like it. it sounds like they were coming at you full force. Just, just listening to it. I feel like someone's trying to get me, you know, like they, like- they were to the point there was incidences where the, the Lieutenant command, Lieutenant commander, um, both of them, told me you're going to get out with nothing. I mean, literally. And um, there was a time that I ended up with the BAH. I was, uh, the BAH is housing. And I kept, I ended up going through the chain of command, mm-hmm. but then I got in trouble. That was another article 15. I got in trouble for skipping the chain of command. I ended up going to the chaplain because I wasn't receiving it for five months and put me in a, a bad situation. And as a single mom. Mm-hmm. And so, but they, I ended up getting an article 15 for that too. It started in April of 2004 is when I ended up, they told me I have a choice. You can get out. Um, and the JAG officer told me you should take it and, or you can fight this. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I had no, I, it's like I had no choice. It was like my dignity was stuck there. My pride was stuck there trying to fight for what was right. You know, being, disobeying an officer, I wasn't disobeying an officer. I was trying to speak 
um, of what they asked me to speak. I was trying to survive in these units being a single mom without the support of the unit. Um, and I went outside the source um, because I had no choice. Um, but during that time, when I started April of 2004, um, at that time, the administrative board started. I had nothing to lose. I, was, I really was hopeless. I, my phone was taken away. Um, as a single mom, I was held, in my, held at home. I could not go anywhere. Um, they literally told me if I didn't have my son, they would have thrown me in jail. That's how bad it got. And why, I was, why? Why would they have thrown you in jail? Because they didn't want to deal with me. And the other thing is, after, throughout the time with the medical board, um, in the beginning, um, my profile was I can lift 50 pounds. So after work, every, for months, for months on months, I was doing extra duty. Extra duty, I was by the, the battalion commander of the, uh, the post and everything, and, you know, I, it, and at that time, I had nothing to lose, so I reported, I finally reported my platoon sergeant um, that sexually assaulted me. And during that process, um, I was brought to the table with the battalion commander in front of me, and he asked me if it happened. I said, yes, sir, it did happen. And then he called me a liar and ripped it up. Oh, my God. Like, right in front of your face, he just ripped it up? And just told you yes. straight to your face, oh, you're lying. Yep. I'm a liar. I'm a liar. I can't so, imagine how that must have felt in that moment. Just. I was already to the point that I was hopeless. I was so suicidal. And, you know, and it was unfortunately the only thing that saved me at that moment of time was that I did have custody of my son. I would go home emotionally drained. I would shut the door and I felt guilty because I wasn't, a real, I, I felt guilty because of being a, a bad mom th at that time because I couldn't help my son at that time. Um, I would go home and I would lay down in my bed. I would turn on the TV cartoons for my son and I would lock the bedroom door so he wouldn't be able, you know, because I was sleeping. I couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. And during that process, they did send me to, they required me to go see a counselor. It was a setup. The reason why I say that is because the counselor that was required was a best friend of the sexual assault male. That's actually oh, I can't even believe it. I just can't even get my mind around that. And so I requested, I said, no, I can't talk to you. He's the one that was, he's the one because he wanted to start a conversation. I was, I was not ready to talk. I was angry with everything, angry with the world. I, at that time, I was defiant. And it, it, was, it, was, too, it was too far gone. I, I reached out to Congress. I reached out to whomever I could reach out to. I tried to get a civilian attorney. It was too late. They, pro they, were already pro they could classify as prosecuting me already. Well, they couldn't wait to get you out fast enough. I am sure of it. I was you also became on, a problem. I also was, uh, put, put myself on Germany orders. And it took 30 days because my, my son was, is autistic. Mm -hmm. So upon having been a mom, I'm a mom with an emotional um, uh, son who had physical problems and emotional right. problems. So it took 30 days to get that. During the process, um, I asked to be removed from the unit 
three to four times. They said, sorry, we can't do that. We can't keep the morale. They were lacking drivers already. And I was just another body. And I ended up going at the end, I ended up requesting to see the battalion commander of the post. At that time, I was angry with everything. And pretty much, excuse my language, but pretty much he literally told me to get off my post and never come back. And I have a documentation showing that. That was his response. Just get yes, out of here. He, was, he wasn't listening. He, he, he respected the, the commander, the lieutenant, and all that stuff. Didn't, never was able to tell st- my story. Never to, I'd be able to. And I think that was the hardest part. Mm-hmm. I wasn't able to speak. I wasn't able to tell my story. I wasn't really able to tell really what happened. And no they didn't want listening. They didn't care. They they, didn't no care. one was listening. No one cared. They didn't want to deal with it, it sounds like. like and, and here's the thing. I, it sounds almost unbelievable. But when I was serving, my uh, barracks roommate went through a huge sexual harassment ordeal to the point where I watched her just diminish as a human being. So I literally watched this over a period of months, her change as a human being from this bright, bubbly, fun ray of sunshine into someone who just wanted to die every it, single it, day. It's very stressful because you're, you're in this unit and it's not, it's like, it's like taking all your friends in a bubble and just going around as a circle around you. And mm-hmm. every single one of you are, it's fighting against you. There is mm-hmm. no one in that circle with you. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. very, very scary. And in her particular situation, we did like you, she finally, she confided in me. So me being the feisty girl that I am, I was like, we're going to do something about this. We're going to fight this. So we went up our chain of command. She went up hers. I went up mine. And her chain was like, we don't want to hear anything yes. like that. That is exactly what it was. And this guy that was doing it, he was like a second class, I think if I remember correctly. And he just every day was like just running her down, talking about every part of her body, talking about how stupid she was talking about like, like everything you can imagine as far as harassment, like when it was like, you know, summer and we were in our whites, it was, you know, I can, you know, describing her body to everybody, making like everything you can imagine. And, you know, even to touching her, cornering her, like things like that when they would ever be alone. And um, we tried to fight it. And I tried on my end, I tried to get her moved. I was like, we got, can, and can you help me? I went up my chain because I worked in a different clinic and um, everyone listened. And for me, everyone listened and was very, you know, seemed to, concern and was going to look into it and there was going to be an investigation. But you know what ultimately ended up happening? She swallowed a bunch of Tylenol. Mm -hmm. She ultimately ended up swallowing a bunch of Tylenol and then they moved her. They listened. Then they moved her. And then finally she started having a happy military experience because we were, this was like, I don't know. Um, six months out of boot camp. So right after mm-hmm. a school, she got stationed at her first staff job yeah. at Great Lakes. And um, she started getting harassed almost immediately. And it started slow. And then it 
eventually started getting really out of hand. And so that's what ended up happening. So I can believe it. I can believe everything that you went through just on the based on the fact that no one would listen to us. And it was like my rude awakening into the real adult world into real life. Do you know, in the end, don't get me wrong, it, it, it was it was to the point, I still fought to the end, you know, for my pride. I wasn't, and it was it was to the point where um, they would say, well, you're, you know, we're going to get you out, we're going to get you out on a general discharge anyway, right? And, it, it, and even the paperwork that they filed for the administrative board of who's going to, who's going to um, talk about me, or who's going to, you know, like we had the battalion commander, we, and ended up even my sexual, because it was ripped up, and it wasn't reported, properly because of the battalion commander. Um, he um, was one of the person that um, talked against me and the administrative board. It just and I was so angry. Very, I know it was very angry, very angry because it's like he, it's like he got away with it. He got mm-hmm. away with disrespecting. And the, the biggest thing was it wasn't just the platoon sergeant itself. It was the trust that he had in his, in his unit it was the trust that he was a friend and this is what hurts the most. It was, it was the trust that he, you know, when you just trust that and it's like his behavior totally changed. Like we were good friends, you know, whatever, you know, as a platoon sergeant and we, we respected each other. He told me to go out in the field and do something and we had that respect. But when it came down to the point where I moved on post when I first got my son, and he had to, because I was in the situation where I had to be in an appointment and the commander told him to go check on me or whatever the case may be, it was an excuse that, oh, you got me alone. Um, you know, and to the point where, you know, I froze. I froze when he sexually assaulted me. He threw me on the couch and started um, fondling me. And I won't go into too much detail, but it was just, it was just so much, it was so hard to take in after the fact. I had almost a year to go. I mean, I had originally three years to go, but it had over a year to go through the administrative board. And I felt so uncomfortable. I would make myself go to the field. Um, even with my son there, I would make myself go to the field because I wasn't that comfortable being around this platoon sergeant anymore. And I know his name, but I won't, I won't broadcast it here. I can just but, imagine how you felt. But with the struggle through the process, even with the with the administrative board paperwork, with all the people that re- was representing me and not representing me, they'd even tried to get me for adultery at the time. I was I was with I was with the guy that I trusted, who was a father figure to my son in general, who was protecting my son from everything. Um, they accused him of sleeping with me, and at the time of the the administrative board, and it was like, how low can you go just to get me out for something? Mm-hmm. And they used the three, four Article 15s. They didn't allow me to talk at all. It was yes or no answer. Did you disobey an officer? Yes. I mean, what else am I supposed to say? You know, and I, I you know, I pleaded not guilty. Um, it wasn't like being in a courtroom or anything. It was four people coming down in a panel in the battalion commander's office. Mm-hmm. Um, during that process, I couldn't fight it. I was done. I was done fighting, but, and I was supposed to get a general discharge at the last minute. I was kicked out for a dishonorable discharge. My God. So homeless. That is the worst 
possible outcome, obviously. You like we're taught right from when you go in, that is what you don't want. Correct. So they they destroyed you. Yes. Yes. And it's and, still taking fifteen years to still recover from this. Wow. So I never imagined that like how serious uh, of an impact a dishonorable discharge would have on someone's life. Can you detail some of the things that you had to go through once Dis you got out? Dishonorable discharge, you get nothing. You get no servant's pay. You get nothing. You're ki literally kicked out, given a piece of paper and said, go do what you need to do. I moved off post for a little bit. Um, I, in, in the area that we lived, you know, Fort Benning's Columbus, Columbus, Georgia area. And in that general idea of the school systems outside the military were so far behind. My son, again, was in an all black school and nothing, you know, against blacks or whites. I mean, I, I honor, you know, I have best friends, but it was just the status of that. They were so far behind. My kid was four years in advance and he was sitting in a school getting in trouble because it was not enough for him. That's interesting. That's interesting that you said that. You made a very interesting point about the differences in the school system. So he's now in an all African-American school, and the education level is substandard. I just want to point that out. I'm just saying social yes. justice issues are very important to me, and you just highlighted one. So yes. I'm sorry, please continue. That's okay. And during that process, while I ended up getting out, um, yeah, I struggled. I struggled because I wasn't receiving any, pretty much any income. Um, so I ended up moving back home. I was homeless for a while. Mm -hmm. I was homeless. I had no place to stay. I had no okay. job. But, but one thing that kept me going, I was still going to school online. I struggled. Right. But they weren't paying, military wasn't paying for it because there was a confusion of, well, you're dishonorable discharge, you don't get a GI Bill. I had to wow. fight my way through that too. I served three years honorably, mm -hmm. then I re-enlisted, and then I served National Guard six years. Right. So it's not like, hey, I'm completely dishonorable with throughout my whole service. I wasn't. I served a lot of honorably the last year. It shows that I had struggles with the unit. It shows that it wasn't just about me. Right. Um, but it was empowering in the long run. It was empowering because it made me fight to get my benefits back. I didn't know a lot about claims. I didn't know a lot about the resources. I, yes, I was dishonorably discharged, but I still filed a claim because I had my medical board. Mm -hmm. And when I tried to file for the VA claim, they said, well, we don't know what you're talking about. We don't have a medical board paperwork. I said, here you go. I have it right in my hand. I ought to, it's, it took two years, two years of waiting, struggling, doing two jobs, stressful jobs, not being able to see my son. I had a babysitter that had him 24-7. I was going to school full-time also. Um, and during that process, the two-year process, I struggled. I struggled. I, there were so many times that I wanted to commit suicide. So many times. Wow. But I had no, I had no choice um, in two years because I was a single mom. I had to fight for my child. And during those two years of waiting, um, even though I was going to school, um, when it came down to the two years and I got, I got in the mail, I got a statement saying, 
we're giving you a general discharge because we can't fight it because it's in your record. The administrative board said you should have gotten a general discharge. But to this day, I'm still fighting because it says misconduct. It doesn't mm -hmm. say medical, which right. I should have gotten out because when I got in, in the two years that I waited, I automatically got 30% medical mm -hmm. for fibro and an adjustment disorder. Adjustment disorder still means personality disorder. It's the same, same situation. They just didn't know what to put it as. Mm -hmm. um, so fighting for years, um, two years, and honestly, it was the story was kind of weird because I was at the same time, I had no other place, so I went through, the, through vocational rehab. And I draw, drove two and a half hours to take a test that I completely failed. I mean, I had 40% and I wasn't going to get anywhere. That day, he said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. I said, wow. what are you talking about? I can't help you. You're receiving benefits. I said, I'm not receiving benefits. I haven't received benefits for two years. And I've been paying out of my pocket to go to school. And during that process, he had to get one of the financial advisors and brought me a piece of paper saying, yes, you are receiving benefits. Here's what's in your bank account. I said, what are you talking about? I said, I checked it yesterday. $10,000. Oh, my goodness. In my bank account. That day changed my life. Oh, my changed God. Changed my life for a while. For a while. Yeah, but I can just imagine that moment must have been like, what? And this is how you find out. You know, you're like, what? There's $10,000 yes, yes. in my bank account? But you, the only thing that I haven't really mentioned is that during this process and during many years of, you know, getting married, I got married, I got a master's degree during this time frame. Mm -hmm. I became a counselor for four years. So I did a lot of work on myself and uh, others. And I worked with, you know, people, I worked with veterans and soldiers as an employment specialist for years. So I still continue to work with veterans and employment specialists and, I'm sorry, veterans and soldiers for years. That was my passion. But what I didn't do is I didn't work on my teammates because it was too hard. Right. So in a way, <laughs> it sounds like you kind of sort of detached from all of, the, of that and put all your focus on helping others deal with theirs. Yes. Yes. And it wasn't just that I, I it was a busy life. I had, mm -hmm. I ended up, my, my son that I was a single mom to is now 23 years old, struggling to get a job himself. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, in, in the sense, in my opinion, he probably does have secondary PTSD from this, from this wow. process. But in the long run, he is, you know, he's doing okay. He's still surviving, but he's still struggling with all this, you know, stuff. He is on his own. Um, after marriage, after I got my master's degree and got married, think, things were getting, you know, feel like getting better. I ended up having two kids, two little ones. Now they are seven and nine now. But, mm -hmm. but to the status of, I never worked on myself. I never cared to work on myself. It was too hard until 2015. Okay. 2015, I was unemployed. I stopped being a counselor. Um, I had, I re-triggered, traumatized myself from the supervisor itself, from the, from being, you know, from working with my supervisor. Right. Um, I won't go into too much detail on that, but uh, I did, I did go into two years of unemployability. Um, I couldn't work. I was dealing with trauma. It was re-triggering from my military career. 
from my sexual assault and the eight months that I dealt with. I couldn't, I had struggles with going to see a counselor because of the situation where my first counselor was out to get me, or if you want to call it out to get me, but it was best friends with my, the, the sexual person who sexually assaulted me. And it was set up that he was there to, you know, get as much information against me so they can get me out. Um, Unbelievable. It, 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 it was a struggle. It was a struggle. In 2015, I took on the challenge because I was already unemployed. I was, I was a counselor. I, I, I volunteered my time as, with working with homeless women, but homeless women in the homeless shelter. I was part of the DAV. Um, I actually was a fellowship for the Meshing Continues. Um, that's what started my journey. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until after this journey um, with, the, with helping women veterans and stuff that I realized that I needed to work on myself. I mean, yeah, how hard it was going to be to work on myself because it, it, it's reopening a can of worms like everybody says. Right. 2015, I went two hours away to see a claim specialist because I didn't trust the people around me. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a lot, I, yeah, I have a lot of trust issues because of, of what had happened to me. But in 2015, I met this person at Women Veterans Conference and she's a fighter. You know, I could tell she's a fighter. So I'm like, I need a fighter to fight my, fight my upgrade and fight my claims. And so I met with her a couple times at the headquarters up in Milwaukee. And I met her three or four times. But during this process, we talked, we chatted. Um, I gave her, I mean, a big bag full of my information. And it, it's taken, it took her months to go through. But in the end, I, would, I emailed her once. And we, were at, we had an intent to file. Which, if you intend to file, you have one year in the process. But we were really close to that one-year mark. And she literally emailed me saying, what are you talking about? I never filed the intent to file for you. I never did your claim for you. And what she told me to do during this process is to go find, because I was telling her about the process of my MST and my, um, my process through the trauma, is to go find the person that hurt me. And I didn't even think about it. You know, she said, you must have paperwork on it. So one day I sat downstairs in the, in where I hid all my paperwork, didn't want to ever go through it again. Mm-hmm. I went, I have a stack. It was probably about 25 pages long and I started reading it and it was how supposedly incompetent I was, how supposedly um, I was a bad soldier. Um, and this and that, and four out of the five people, that were supposedly the ones that were talking against me had no idea who I was. And the yeah. one that was, the knew me was my sec, my person that sexually assaulted me. So how much, how much time, you know, so it really re-triggered it in 2015 and it put me, put me in a pain and it got to the point that I feared so much that I, got into a stage that, you know, I won't tell people, you know, you hide from things. You hide from people when you're in a bad day. You hide from people and you isolate when you don't, you know, you you don't want people to know that, you know, you're having a bad day. I see a lot of women that struggle with that. Right. And in 2015, 2016, I actually ended up a job too. I worked as a DBOP 
I love the job. I love the camaraderie. It was the first time that it opened up a can of worms that was positive in my life. But that didn't last long. That didn't last long at all. It was all males. And I didn't know until the end that I was set up um, because an individual wanted me to work for them because they wanted me to sleep with them. What? Yeah. How, how did you figure that out? I went through, during that 2015, I, I, I started drinking. I started hanging out with the boys, if you want to call it the, 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 the gang of work. Um, I got myself into trouble. I'm not going to say I didn't. I got myself into trouble um, at the time. It's still, it's still to this time, I was married at the time, too. And it ended up not a good situation. Um, but in the end, I had to leave the situation. I was overrun by a job opportunity. Um, a male that was not qualified got a position that I was qualified for. Um, and it was in a bad situation where the males were, they did not have my back. They did not have my back. They were there for the job itself. Um, when I tried to report it, um, I was in crisis mode. I was in a major crisis. And I tried to report it to a female, my supervisor, and she says, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Oh, wow. That makes her complicit, I guess. Well, and, and to the point of also, I was a big women advocate. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if somebody, a woman come to me, the same time I'm fighting my own demons, a woman would come to me, hey, I need a gift card. Or what's the resource for a counselor? What is it that I knew it all? I knew, mm -hmm. I'm not going to I knew it all. Let me rephrase it. I was in kind of an expert for helping women veterans in my area. Um, but in 2015, um, that career, that, that job ended. Um, I transferred to another job. And from then on, it was crisis mode until 2018. My goodness. How did you get through it? Um, I had to deal with myself. I mean, I had to, um, during that process, my last year, 2018 in 2018 um let me let me go backwards a little bit in 27 to 2018 i took on contract positions to work with the reserve and the national guard units different different positions right and during that time and during that time frame um i did not realize some of the traumas because i hit him so bad i i i hid all my traumas. I didn't want to face them. I didn't want to do, you know, we all, we all want to avoid them because it's, it's, it's hurtful and it's, it's downgrading to your internal soul. And in 2017, after I opened the can of worms um, about reading my administrative board and going after my claim, and I've been fighting ever since my claim. Um, but in 2017, I took on a position where I was in a position where it was E5, E6, commanders, lieutenants, in a unit. I respected them. No problems with that. But I didn't realize I triggered because I didn't face my right. demons in the time I was kicked out. So I was not, um, then I transferred to another position because they lost the contract. The contract, they, they lost the contract. And during those two years, I did a lot of work from home and I just couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. 
And so 2018, I was, I was active in DAV. I was a lifetime member. Um, I still volunteered my time here and there. But when I had bad days, I never went out. I isolated myself. But in 2018, I got to the point where I felt, I don't know if it was just my mental health itself, but there were other people out there, males that I worked with, that didn't have my back, that threatened me throughout the process. I lost a job because of one. Wait, threatened you? Yes. I was threatened um, continuously um, by a male that I did work with in the past in 2015. And because I was very good at my job, he was jealous. And it was, it was the fact. He was jealous that I could work with people. I was good at what I did. I had, I showed, I was showing the quota of how many people came back to me to talk to me. I did also have a background in counseling, so it did help a little bit, but people would not show up to his appointments. People would not. So throughout the time, he was also a volunteer out in the community. And every time he seen me, he would, you know, talk bad about me or, or put, put me down or talk to authorities and, you know, he got me kicked, kicked out of a place because of his bad, you know, behavior. And, you know, it was just, it was a very stressful moment in my time. I, I, got did, not, I did not realize that you're doing all this altruistic work, you know, <laughs> and you guys are helping people, you're out to help people, but behind the scenes, it's cutthroat. It's like backbiting, backstabbing, setups, threatening, like I'm appalled by all of this the stronger you get as a woman veteran and this is what in my opinion but the stronger i've gotten as a woman veteran the more you see you see the the struggles or the see the real people in it i mean i've i've gone into situations where um i won't see i won't see corporations or organizations but i went to certain situations where i'm appointed into a position where, you know, they're supposed to support you. They're supposed to, you know, have your back, you know, because you're appointed by them. And, but you're fighting them the whole, whole way. <laughs> you're fighting them the whole way to help our women veterans in the community. And oh it's just, goodness. it's, but you know what? I've learned one lesson. I've learned one lesson in the last couple of days of just being on Facebook and seeing these suicides happen one day at a time. And it is it is so heartbreaking because a lot of it is, you know, some of it's dealing with the VA, some of it's dealing with claim process, some of it's dealing with just struggles in the family. And we can name, keep naming over and yes. over in the process. But it's if, if, and people isolate themselves because they feel that nobody's listening. Nobody wants to be told what to do. They just want to be heard. And, you know, um, so it's the process of, you know, fighting a simple, simple thing of, I just need to see a neurologist or I need to see a specialist mm -hmm. and I've walked people through this process and I called community care and get that person, that specialist It's being able to reach out to the people that can reach out or find that resource. And that's where the passion comes in for me, regardless of what I struggle. I struggle getting up this morning because I felt like honestly, every morning I feel like I'm going to die in my sleep. My That's goodness. how struggling and traumatizing I, I, I've gotten. So I guess my next question is, what, what do you do to overcome that? 
what I've done is it's really about, it's honestly, it's about the support of the sisters. To me, it's the support of the sisters. There is the support of the males too, um, but it's the support of sisters. I re recently created um, a Florida DAV women, women veteran support um, Facebook. And just to kind of, it's more of a project. It's a project where when I came to Florida, I moved in 2018 because of the trauma that occurred in this, where I was from the state of Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't do it. I just needed a new environment. I needed a, nobody who knew me. I start back over, start fresh. And so in the, in the status of creating something new, I was a lifetime member of DAV, so I had to find a chapter. I found a chapter. There was no women. There's no women in that chapter. Um, but it wasn't just about that. When I got into being appointed uh, the state commander, or this, I'm sorry, rephrase that, the women coordinator position, I realized there was a lot of more struggles than really is faced. Out of 51 chapters in the DAV in Florida, there are at least, it could be more, but there are at least only five women in these five out of five chapters. Oh. There's some service officers. There's a couple, especially in a, in a higher position. There's a few maybe officers, um, a few service officers, women veterans, and they're increasing. They're, they are increasing. But the status is that when you're uh, attending a women conference two years in a row and you get 15, maybe 30, 30 in the last two years that I've attended, Honestly, that's a sad situation when there's over 144,000 women veterans in Florida. Third highest. It, it, something needs to be done. And it's really not about a position I hold. It's really about supporting our sisters through the, through the struggles that we face. It's really about sticking, you know, it is, it is hard to say, you know, one, one, and it is very difficult to connect female with female because in the past, in the struggles that I've faced, you see females, not just females and females, but females, males, beating each other up. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm a leader. I should get this. Or I'm a this. It's not about a leadership role. It's about saving our sisters and saving our brothers. And yes, I am very passionate about it. I mean, look at what I've gone through. I couldn't find the resources. I was homeless. I, I stressed out about... Uh, reaching out to support my sisters because I couldn't find these sisters and then come to Florida and I lose a little bit of my VA benefit. I'm, let me phrase this. I lose about a little bit of when transferring up here to feel good. I was getting injections. I was getting a little more assistance when I come to with Florida, they refuse to get me certain medical issue, medical stuff. So I'm in more pain. Oh my goodness. And they say, well, we're improving. Well, compared to back in Wisconsin, I was part of the Women's Subcommittee, um, a sister assistant program, which I'm honored to honor. I was honored to be to see it. But in Wisconsin, we, we worked with the women coordinator through the VA system and they improved. They tried to improve the VA itself, you know, um, trying to reduce the harassment, trying to increase the women population to go to the VA, just things like that to 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 feel comfortable with the VA system. But in Florida, it's a different culture. Um, I don't know if it's because it's warm all year round <laughs> or if it's just to the point where 
we're not outreaching. There is not a lot of women veteran nonprofits in the area. Um, there is not a lot of um, local financial in Wisconsin. We had a veteran homes. We had that we, they recreated. We had a C, we had CVI, which was Center of Veteran Issues, where they dealt with a lot of homeless. We have we also have HUD. We do have HUD here, but we do have a lack of housing. We do have a lack of connections, and we're getting a lot of runarounds. You know, you you get a wet women veteran. Well, where can I go? I have a I have children. Where can I go? They're surfing on the couch, but they're not counted as homeless. There's so many different different directions. And what I've noticed in the last week, actually, is that with all the suicides, not just with the VA system itself or whatever, with all the suicides that have attended, um, that have happened, and the reality of it, something needs to change. It's not the good old boys anymore. You're absolutely right. My next question for you is, after all of this journey and everything you've been through, you've now created an organization that's dedicated to helping veterans. Will you tell me more about that? Well, there's actually two sections, um, two sections of it. When I was in Wisconsin, I was part of the Mission Continues, and they gave me a little direction to go with. And during that process, there was a gentleman that helped me through creating social events, allowing women to stay in their homes with grants, grant-based. And from there, I actually created, and it took me two and a half years of research and education, and it wasn't an overnight process. It got transformed. Um, it started in January of 2018 in Wisconsin. Again, it's a different culture in Wisconsin, what is needed in Florida. So when I came to Florida, um, I was questioning myself if I wanted to kind of transfer it. Um, I researched, I don't want to repeat anything that's already here. I want to be actually, I want to collaborate. I want it's, you know, if you collaborate with another organization that's doing something less work than me, less work to, for me to do, but it's also a combination of connecting with others. Um, Hope for Veterans is really about finding the resources, taking a woman veteran who has, who maybe lost their purpose who maybe has the skills in education. I've found many people that have master's degree or bachelor's degree. It's not just about the degree itself. You know, people that know how to knit, people that have the passion to help others, but they're not giving that opportunity to utilize that. So Hope for Veterans is not just here, you want to volunteer for an organization and it's all about women veterans. It's about have, giving, taking that woman veteran regardless if they need the help or regardless if they want to volunteer to utilize, combine the two, supporting the two um, women, excuse me, that need help or that want to help to, you know, um, starting with service officers, having these women service officers work with MST clients. They're more comfortable mm -hmm. having women veterans attend with these people with CP exams. They're coming out like crazy now. I just attended six CP exams, you know, by myself, and they're stressful. They're anxiety-driven. And so we are reaching out to Florida area to be able to, if they want us to support them, to be able to go with them in their, you know, with them to those meetings. Um, and to be able to VA system. We are reaching out. We have connections. 
um, Jacqueline Hayes, who is the VA rep, um, who, you know, anybody needs help from the Washington, D.C. We have a lot of people in Florida, like uh, Lisa Kirk, who is a great representative, has lots of resources, and a lot of women have resources. You know, in their community, they find resources over time. I can't do it all, but they can help, uh, you know, and we want them to help, be able to help. Um, and being able to, you know, utilize the VA system. You know, a lot of people have gone outside the VA system, and that's very common because there's a, there is a lot of red tape, red tape, sorry about that, red tape. But if we don't continue to use it, and if you fall under the program, if you say, I don't want to use it anymore, two years gone by, it's very difficult to get back in because of the waiting list or because so many people being part of it. The reason why we say to stay with them for, you know, to be at least once a year, go see the PCP primary care physician is because you're still in the system. Nowadays, because the mission act is starting to take over, you can go outside the system with specialty and with women, it is needed with specialty. You know, yeah, you could see your PCP, you get the basic overall, you see your, you get an exam once a year, whatever the case may be. But I have migraines on a weekly basis. I need to see a neurologist. You know, giving me meds, meds 24-7 is not going to be the not To me, that's not the answer. Wow. So if anyone wanted to uh, reach out to your organization, how would they do that? There are many ways. Um, first of all, I mean, I do have my personal phone, that is a personal phone that's always on. Um, and my number, again, is 920-471-2119. Uh, it is Florida now because it's from Wisconsin, but um, for that number. But the website to look under is www.hope4veterans.org. And just to look on the website, see what we offer. We are still expanding it, but in the process um, of expanding it, we're, we're just we're new to the pro, too new to the area because I just transferred it in April. Um, but we're new to the area, being able to get you know grants going, financial assistance going, and utilizing. But upon everything else, the process, I was also given that opportunity to be a women coordinator to work to connect with our DAV population, women veterans, because of the status of, you know, the status that there, we are lacking the women veteran connection. Um, and so combining the two, being careful, because you can't wear two hats at once, right. but combining the two, um, because social events um, are not, are not going to, um, a lot of times won't be able to be funded. Um, so we're utilizing Hope for Veterans to fund um, fund some of that social events and, and, and we're, do, we're, we're setting up some projects coming up in the future and working with women uh, coordinator for the state of Florida also. Um, a couple organiza you know, organizations. We also have a couple organizations we are working for nonprofits that want to work with women veterans that are somewhat of a male population right now, but reaching out to our nonprofits in Miami and Tampa and Sarasota and in, in Pensacola. We have over 120 on that Facebook right now, and we need more. Um, mm -hmm. We are looking to, we are looking to get those leaders in those areas to provide statistics for not just us for VA system to help our women veterans. We are looking for outreach to go to these events 
to reach out not just for the DAV, but to for our women veterans in general, um, because we are there. We want to say we are there for you. We can, we'll, we'll reach out and get the community. If you have a struggle, we will do everything our power, even if we have to go to Congress or or connect with Jacqueline Hayes, um, you know, because she, you know, she is the head of the VA system. Um, but to be able to not just that with the VA, we want a VA coordinator um, to organize events at the VA to connect our resources, get resources in each VA department. Um, so if we have some status or problem with a women veteran, hey, I'm having struggles with my counselor, I'm having struggles with whatever it is they need, they have struggles with, we can kind of help reach out and be able to kind of help navigate and find a resolution. It might not be the resolution that we thought it was a resolution. Maybe it's just a resolution that they need to be heard. So these are the just a couple things that we are trying to do. We are open for suggestions because every woman has a story to tell and every woman has unique skill to bring to the table. And we are open to whatever you want to bring. I love that you said that every woman has a story to tell because yes. you know that is my philosophy and that is what I believe and that is exactly why I'm doing this. And I want to thank you so much for coming here today and sharing your story and telling me everything that you're doing because you are doing amazing things there in Florida to help our female veteran community to just thrive and to to have a better experience in this life. And I, it's just amazing. It's amazing to me after everything that you've been through and everything that you fought through and what you've begun doing. It's so beautiful. And I just want to thank you. Thank you for coming on my podcast and sharing this. You know, one thing, one thing to end to end this, uh, the, the scenario or the story here today was that um, I get a lot of women ask me, well, what can I bring to the table? I don't understand. I don't have anything to bring to the table. One thing that I've learned over time, even if you're struggling today, which many of us do, I struggle on a daily basis. I'm not going to say, you know, I'm a leader or whatever the case may be. I still have really bad days too. But the per people that are struggling, the people that are fighting, the women or males that are fighting are the best leaders are the ones that can show other women veterans the way. And if you're ready to tell your story, we're ready to hear. Listen. That's beautiful. And my last question for you is what advice, what tips or strategies do you have that you would like to share with other female veterans that might be in the struggle right now? There are many. There are many women that are struggle. I mean, I to, to every day you see uh, at least fifteen to twenty women ask for advice for something, uh, anywhere from claims to medical issues to I'm fighting this, I'm fighting a meta a bill or whatever the case may be. The thing of it is, especially even with the claim process, claim process takes a long time. Yes, and it you know it's the process of being able to educate. If I'm able to give just advice about certain things, about claims or process, what, one thing I would tell anybody is do not stop fighting. You know what you deserve. You know your struggles. And you know when you're ready to stop fighting. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's beautiful. So 
some of the best advice I ever heard, actually, do not stop fighting. Keep fighting for what you believe you deserve. And you probably should fight even more because you probably deserve more than you think you deserve. <laughs> so yes, and empowering women, empowering women is very powerful. You know, again, with the story I'm telling through this process, and this is taking me 15 years to tell um, through the process is the empowerment of the, you know, I don't say, okay, go ahead and you need to volunteer to, right now. It's not, and I'm not, you know, even on this, the, the Florida DAV women veterans or my, uh, or hope for veterans, I don't tell you, you need to volunteer or you need to change your ways. It's not about that. It's about when you're ready, you know, when you're struggling this day, or you know, when you're struggling this month, if you, even if you can miss, make a call to help our women veterans, if you are able to do secretarial position, if you can just do paperwork or, or just send a flyer out to someone. It's still part of the group. You are still very important to whatever, you know, you, you are important and you can empower yourself. I agree. Oh my gosh, Lynn, thank you so much for all of that. That was just a really, really powerful conversation. And I appreciate your candor and I appreciate all the passion that you put behind every single thing you do in the support of female veterans. And Florida is really lucky to have you. I got to tell you. And I have to thank you because thank you for, because I know somehow we reached out together, re reached out to each other mm -hmm. and that it, there's always a reason behind it. And I know there's a lot of women that want to tell their story. There is a lot of projects out there. Like I'm not invisible or I am not invisible or things that the VA are representing, which is, which is wonderful because you see the empowerment happen and transform just a picture for of a woman veteran, just to tell the story. It empowers them think I'm important. I can do more. Absolutely. And that's what I want to see. I want to see other women reach out and any, your story might save another life. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is something that I have been saying for quite some time. And everyone who is interested in learning more about Lynn's organization, I will put links in the description of the episode so that you can find her and reach out to her as well. And just from the bottom of my heart, Lynn, before I sign off, I want to tell you, thank you. Thank you for everything that you're doing. You know, it is horrible to hear what you had to experience. And as an empathic person, I definitely like connect to the emotions of what you must have been going through during your active experience, but, and how you've had so many hurdles to overcome and how you've just the entire time helped other people. You're just such a beautiful soul. And I just thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. And sometimes it, it's always a situation where if it empower, you know, the volunteer, for me, volunteering empowered me. And even though I struggle to this day, it kept me alive. And Absolutely. that's, it, it kept me alive. And that's where um, I am very, very um, emphasis on the struggle of the homelessness and the struggle of suicide, you know, not just women, but males also. Absolutely. We need to try to prevent it. 
So. Oh yeah. Our veteran brothers and sisters are dying like crazy. I think I read a statistic that was on NPR that said the suicide rate for female veterans is 250% higher than for their civilian counterparts. I mean, that's 250%. That is not a small difference. Well, one purpose that it is the, the highest, why the highest rating is because we know how to use a gun. And there is civilian out there too. But because a gun is something that you can't come back from, I mean, if you're taking drugs and you're whatever the case would be, you might end up in the hospital and survive. But you shoot yourself, you know, most of the time you're done. Unfortunately, that's the case. And so women in the military know how to use rifles and how to do it, you know, it's so hard to say because suicide just in general is just so heartbreaking. It absolutely is. And you know what? I definitely believe that with this podcast and with people like yourself coming on and opening up and sharing our stories, you know, I speak to women every day now and a lot of them will say to me, um, I don't know that my story can help someone. I don't know Mm -hmm. if I have tips on how to overcome the situation. And I tell them, your story is important. It matters. It could save a life because you don't know who's coming just right behind you. That could be in a part of the struggle that you just came through and you just came through it. So you're at that next phase and it could be so beneficial for them that it could be the difference between them going out and hurting themselves or not you know? So everybody's story is important. And again, I want to thank you for sharing yours. And with that, I am going to thank everybody out there for listening. Thank you so much for coming on this journey with me. I appreciate you guys so much. Thank you for listening. I love you guys. And I will talk to you next time.